Please, brothers and sisters, if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Revelation as we'll be looking at our text this morning, which comes to us from chapter 3 and verses 7 to 13. Revelation chapter 3 and verses 7 to 13. Please then hear with me the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Today, brothers and sisters, we look at the church in Philadelphia. Now this name Philadelphia is a, is a name that is, I think, familiar to every one of us here is We have our own Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia in the United States, which bears the same name of the church in our text today. And it's that city within that state of Pennsylvania, which bears the name Philadelphia, which is nicknamed then the the city of brotherly love. Now, the city Pennsylvania here in the States uh, was founded by William Penn. And William Penn founded and named this city Philadelphia because he desired it to be a place in which all people who worshipped one almighty God could come and worship that God in peace, not having to be uh, made to worship Him in one particular manner or not being constrained to worship Him in one prescribed way. Now, The city is nicknamed the city of brotherly love, though, because the word Philadelphia itself is comprised of of two Greek words. uh, Phileo, which means love, and Adelphos, which means brother. That's where we get the Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But before the city of brotherly love ever existed in the United States, there was another city called Philadelphia, which was founded upon the actual love of two brothers. And those two brothers' names were Emmaus, Emmaus II, who was king of Pergamum, and his younger brother, Attalus II, who likewise lived and reigned during the 2nd century B.C. Now the love that existed between these two brothers uh, really came to be manifested through Primarily two events that we know of. Uh, The first event was that there was a false uh, rumor going around that uh, Emmaus II had been assassinated. And he was the king of Pergamum. And so it was his younger brother, Atalus, who, who took upon himself, who accepted the crown. 
But as soon as Italus realized that his brother, in fact, had not died and the rumor is false, he immediately gave back the crown to his brother. The second event that demonstrated the love between these two brothers was when Rome came to Italus and encouraged him to actually overthrow his brother and to take over the kingdom on his own, to take over the kingdom as his own, uh, to, to, to be his. And in fact, Italus uh, refused this. And because of this, the people uh, nicknamed Italus a Philadelphus or the lover of his brother. And so when Philadelphia was founded by one of the two brothers, we're not sure which one actually founded it, it was named Philadelphia to commemorate that love between these two brothers. Now it's important to note from the outset, because it's pertinent to the contents of the letter later on, that Philadelphia was founded and intended to be a missionary city. The goal of this city was to bring forth the Greek culture and the Greek language, which eventually in the year 19 AD came to happen. It was in 19 AD that Greek culture and language dominated this land, and the Greek language was the only language that was spoken here. Now, perhaps the city of Philadelphia was most known, though, for uh, their earthquakes. Uh, out of all of the cities in Asia Minor, uh, Philadelphia was the most afflicted by earthquakes. Uh, in fact, uh, there was a great earthquake in 17 AD that hit Philadelphia so hard that they continued to feel the reverberations of that for the years to follow. In fact, the city of Philadelphia sat upon a, fa a fault line, which meant that they, they constantly were feeling tremblings, which meant that they spent a lot of time outside of their homes. Right? When their homes were destroyed by the earthquake, they didn't even rebuild them, thinking that they were going to be destroyed not too uh, soon in the distant future. Uh, likewise, because of these earthquakes, not many people came into the city. And not many people slept in their own homes because the, the homes had cracks in the walls because of these earthquakes. But by the year A.D. 20, many of the earthquakes have now subsided. But the memory of what those earthquakes have, have done to the city continued and remained with the people in the years to follow. Now with respect to the other churches that Jesus has drawn right to, if we were to line them all up and compare Philadelphia with them, we might say that, that Smyrna is the most closely related to Philadelphia. Right? Why is that? It is because both Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only two of the seven churches that receive no rebuke from the Lord. Likewise, as we have seen thus far, each letter that is written by John to the churches is written and designed for the purpose of causing the churches to look to the person and to the work of Christ instead of being bogged down in despair with their dire circumstances that they are dealing with. And this letter that is written to the church in Philadelphia is no different. Right? Christ opens up by pointing them to something that is true about Himself. Right? He, he writes so that they might know something about Him, that they might trust in that, and that it might guide and motivate them in their Christian walk as they continue to live in this world in this city in particular, that is hostile towards Christ and towards His church. 
And so today, as we look at what Christ has to say to the church in Philadelphia, and as we attempt to understand what it is He commends them for, and how He consoles His church, we are going to do so under three points this morning. And the three points are this. First, what Christ alone does. So our first point, what Christ alone does. Our second point will be, what Christ will do for Philadelphia. What Christ will do for Philadelphia. And our third point will be, what Christ will do for the conquerors. What Christ will do for the conquerors. So we have what Christ alone does, what Christ will do for Philadelphia, what Christ will do for the conquerors. And so point one, what Christ alone does. Look with me please, once again at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Here immediately, what do we see? That Christ reminds His church that He is holy. Right? He reminds the church that He is holy. Now what's interesting about this is right after this, Jesus is going to quote from the prophet Isaiah when He references the key of David. And so it's quite possible that in anticipation of this quotation, He is likewise alluding to the prophet Isaiah in His description of Himself being holy. And why would He be doing that? Well, because Isaiah uses the word holy almost exclusively as a title of God in the book of Isaiah. He does it about 20 times. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 14 and 15. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans. In the, ships in, which they in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord your God, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now, not only does He say that He's holy, but He adds to that that He is true. Right? What are these? Attributes of deity. And so what He is saying is that He is divine. He is God. Right? He is the Holy One of Israel. That He is the Lord their God. That it is God who writes to the saints in Philadelphia. That is what Jesus is pointing out as He references back or alludes back to the holiness that Isaiah writes about throughout that prophetic book. But not only does He say that He is holy and true for that purpose, but I think likewise He, he brings out his trueness, not because He is just the one true living God, but also in contrast to what those Jews who belonged to the synagogue of Satan were saying. Right? It was those Jews who were denying Him as Messiah. Right? They were telling the Christians there, the, the God you worship, right? He is a false Messiah. And so Jesus is saying, not only is He holy and true, not only is He God, but He is likewise the true Messiah. Right, who has come to redeem a people. Next then, Jesus says that He is the one who also has the key of David. 
Now, to understand this, we need to go back to the quotation that he is making reference to. And that comes to us from Isaiah chapter 22. Now, you don't have to turn there if you, if you don't want to. I can just read this and, and listen. Isaiah chapter 22, and I will begin at verse 20. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Now, what we need to understand in in the context of this passage is in Isaiah 22, there is this faithless servant named Sheba. And so what God is saying is, I'm going to replace this faithless servant Sheba with my own servant Eliakim. And Eliakim is going to control access to the king and would also be the one who would dispense the resources of the kingdom to the Israelites. Now, where else do we hear about keys in the book of Revelation? Because this also isn't the only place, is it? Right? Think back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. He said he is, has the keys of death in Hades. So what was he communicating to the saints then? That he had authority over death and judgment. Well, now, brothers and sisters, what is he trying to communicate to them and pointing them back to Eliakim, who had the key of David? Right here he is saying, I have authority as the one who has the key of David over the kingdom and who has entrance into that kingdom. Right? That is the truth that he is communicating to them here. This too might be a bit polemical as well. Because we need to understand that the Jews in the synagogue were shutting the doors to the Christians. They weren't letting them in. And in closing the doors off to the Christians, they believed they were closing them off to salvation. That they were closing the door of the kingdom to the Christians. And so what, this is a, a, bit, a, bit, uh, a bit polemical then in the sense that, that what Jesus is saying is that no, right, they don't have the authority or the power to shut you out of the kingdom. For that authority and power belongs to me, the one who holds the king of David, the key of David. And now Jesus, as head of true Israel, right, who has all authority and power, right, He is telling them, I have opened the door of salvation. I have opened the kingdom up to you and nobody else can shut it. Right? I have opened up the true synagogue doors that I have brought you into in which you have entered and no man has authority to shut you out from that salvation. And this highlights the fact Brothers and sisters, that, that Christ is the only way into the kingdom. That, that Christ is the only way to salvation. And Jesus Himself, during His earthly ministry, continued to highlight that as well. In John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by Me, he will be saved. John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through 
me. And so there is a, a lesson here to be had by the saints in the church of Philadelphia, which, remember, was established as a missionary city. And that is that the church in Philadelphia was to rely on Christ and He alone who had the key of David for success in their ministry. They were to look to Christ and He alone as they proclaimed the name of the Lord to the pagans in the city and to the Jews in the city. Right? For Christ held the key. He had the authority to, to let those into the kingdom. Which ought to have been exciting news, shouldn't it have? To this powerless and weak city. And to call them weak isn't a derogatory term, but rather it is to highlight the very reality of the situation that they were in. They weren't a powerful church. They were a small church, a weak church. Right? They needed to understand the power was not to be found in them, but that they were to look to Christ, that they were to pray to Christ for success of the Gospel in that city. Right? They were to proclaim the, the Holy and True One. And just realize and recognize that, that it was He who had opened the door of salvation. That He would be the one who would open the kingdom to the sinners in that city. Right? Think about it in this manner. Nobody comes to your home unless they are invited. Generally speaking. They come upon invitation. Right? Those who you want to come into your house, you invite and you let them in. Such is the same with the kingdom. You see, the, the Christians here are, are trying to get some people into the kingdom and, and, and what Christ is saying is, no, 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 it's my kingdom. All you can do is preach the Word, but it's me who has to invite them in through the doors. You do not have the power to do that. And what a freeing message, brothers and sisters, then. That ought to be to every single one of us here today as well in all churches that preach the Gospel around the world. Right? What a freeing message it ought to be that you simply just... Tell people about Christ and leave everything else to Christ. Right? That, that you simply proclaim Him to those whom you come into contact with, but opening the door doesn't belong to you, that belongs to Christ. That the responsibility to get them through the kingdom isn't on you, it's on Christ. One author puts it this way, uh, His reliability and strength, that is Christ. So Christ's reliability and strength are such that one can rest on Him the weight of the host of the redeemed people and their destiny. Right? The weight of the redeemed and their destiny can simply be placed upon the shoulders of Christ. Right? The destiny of the sinner does not lie with you and in your ability to get someone in there, but rather it rests with Christ and so simply know that we are to proclaim the Gospel but all of those who have been elected unto salvation have already been certified and sealed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so the saving will happen, but it will happen upon Christ-appointed hour, right? when He decides to do it. But also then, brothers and sisters, what we also need to see is then what a privilege it is to belong to the church. As it is the church's responsibility to proclaim the Gospel that He uses as a means to bring people in through the door of the Kingdom. Right? What a responsibility that is, but also what a privilege and honor it is. Right? He uses the church to preach these words by which He grants eternal life to sinners. As only He opens and no one will shut. 
And only He shuts and no one opens. Which is also what? It's a warning, isn't it? Right? It's a warning to the, to the Jews in the synagogue of Satan. That the door of the kingdom has been shut to them for they reject the Messiah who is the only way into the kingdom. And the same is true for unbelievers today. The door of the kingdom is shut to all who reject the Messiah for He is the only way into entrance into the kingdom. This then leads us to look at Christ's commendation to the church in Philadelphia which begins then at verse 8. Please look with me there. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews or not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Here then, brothers and sisters, let us look together at point number two, which is what Christ will do for Philadelphia. What Christ will do for Philadelphia. And in here, in these verses, Jesus is going to describe for us three things that He will do or or has already begun to do for the church in Philadelphia. The first thing that we see is that He says He has set before them an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, there are different interpretations as to what the door may be, but I think based upon all of Scripture, based upon the context, based upon Philadelphia being a a missionary city, I think what the door is, is something that's identifiable to us. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says this, At the same time, pray also for us that God may do what? Open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. Finally, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, When I came to Troas to preach the Gospel of Christ, even though the door was open to me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. And so I think it's clear, brothers and sisters, to say that that open door that he has set before the saints Right, is an open door for the ministry, for the proclamation of the word. Right, what he's saying to them is, I have said open this door. I, I am the one who provides you all the opportunity to profess my name to the sinners in your community. And what a magnificent promise that is to the saints there, isn't it? A church that is probably somewhat in despair. As they see that Nobody's being converted by their words thus far. The, the church is small. It's weak. Right? They're, they're doing all this work, but they're seeing no benefit. They're seeing no fruit. They're seeing nobody convert to Christianity. Nevertheless, we see although they are small and weak and of little strength and of little respect in the world, a bright spot is that they refuse to deny Christ. 
Right? They refused to deny His name and, and gain perhaps what others had. But that doesn't mean, although they did not deny His name, that you don't start to question yourself after time. That you don't start to question your own usefulness in seeing nobody coming to saving faith through your ministry. And perhaps the saints there started to think to themselves, well man, maybe there are other methods or things that we can do to draw people into, into the church that we might have a, a bigger footprint in the city that, that our reach might extend further. I think, brothers and sisters, that, that we personally know maybe a little bit what that is like. You know, as I, as I read the letter to, to the church in Philadelphia, I thought that in, in many respects it bared a lot of resemblance to the church here as well. You know, we're a, a small body. We're not on anyone's radar. Not many people know about us. Right? But over the last three years, what do we do? We just keep plugging away. Keep preaching the Word. Remaining faithful. And just relying on the Lord. Trusting in Him. But that doesn't mean from time to time that you don't think about, man, if I only implemented this, you know, maybe we could have a far greater reach in our community. Right? If I only did that, right, maybe more people would come. Maybe we would have a bigger name for ourselves, especially as you look at what other churches do in your surrounding areas. But herein, brothers and sisters, these words of our Lord is a reminder to the church in Philadelphia and a reminder for us here today why we aren't to give in to that temptation to water down the Word or to, to make things easy to sneak people into the kingdom. And that is that it's good for us to remember that we are weak. Right? That we are to remember that we are weak. That we have but little power in ourselves. It's also a reminder then for us to look to the One who has all power. Who is strong. Right? We are to remember that it is God in His timing who will provide opportunity for the Word to go out and it is the Lord in His timing who will provide the people. You see, many today lose focus of that, don't they? Right? They want to be strong in their societies, in their local neighborhoods. They want to appear strong. And so they want these, to, to amass these large numbers of people, this large following. And so what do they do? They start innovating and, and creating ways in which they can make them, themselves strong now, early in their ministry. Quickly, they want to do these things to attract people who are already unattracted by the Gospel and by Christ. But... We need to see this, that, that when we try to be strong on account of ourselves, that is when we are impotent before the eyes of God. And rather, it's when we recognize that we are weak and we flee to the One who is strong, that we who are weak become strong. Right? That is when we become strong, when we flee to the One who is strong. The church in Philadelphia continued to preach the good news to the Jews, but nothing seemed to work. Nothing seemed to happen. But what Christ is saying to them here is that it's not up to you. It's not up to you to bring them in. It's up to me. I provide you the door of opportunity. But it is me who makes effective and effectual the Word to sinners. Right? So you continue to pray, proclaim the Word. And it's I who will continue to convert. But it's also a reminder to us, brothers and sisters, to make use of the door. Right? Make use of the door. When opportunity presents itself, do not neglect to use it. 
Don't stop telling others about Christ. Don't stop inviting people to church. Right? Don't stop bearing witness to the name of Christ to your unbelieving children and family members and friends, knowing that Christ exerts His power through His church. And so, brothers and sisters, we here likewise are not going to stop proclaiming the Word. Regardless if it appears that anyone cares or listens or comes. We're not going to look to innovate or change things for those reasons. We are going to continue to persist in simple worship of God as He has prescribed and believe and trust, just like the church in Philadelphia, that He will bless it. And this is what He says to them. Here is the second thing that Christ says He will do for them. In verse 9, He says that He will make those who say they are Jews but are not come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. You see, the, the power of the church in Philadelphia paled in comparison to the power of the pagan and Jewish communities in Philadelphia. But what does God promise here? He promises to them as they continue to use that door of opportunity and witness to the sinners around them, to the Jews and the pagans around them, about salvation that is found in Christ alone, that He will make that ministry successful. That is what He promises them here. He says, I will make them bow down and know that I love you. Now, what we need to understand is that this likewise is an allusion back to the book of Isaiah. And in fact, this goes back to Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 14. And it's here that we read this. Isaiah 45 and verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchants of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you and they shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, Surely God is in you and there is no other God, no God besides Him. Right Here in that Isaiah text, what is being predicted is that the Gentiles are going to come before the Israelites and are going to bow down before them and their God in the last days, recognizing that their God is the true God and come to faith in that true God. But in our text, brothers and sisters, how do we see the prophecy fulfilled? There's a reversal of roles, is there not? as it is not fulfilled in the nation of Israel, but the church who is the true Israel of God through faith in the Messiah. And what we see now is that ethnic Israel has fulfilled the role of the Gentiles. It is the the ethnic Israel who is going to bow down before the feet of true Israel, which is the church. But that's not to say that God has abandoned the Jews altogether. right? For what does He say here? He will make some of the Jews who the church in Philadelphia witnessed to, come to see through the power of the Word that Christ loves His church and that God is with His church. And through that, unbelieving Jews will come to faith in the Messiah. Right? Acknowledging their, their blindness and their sinfulness. They will come in through faith and repentance and join themselves to the church. That is what is going to happen to the the worship of the church of the true Messiah. 
with and amongst the churches, we all bow down before the Lord to worship Him. And so ultimately, He promises to them what? In saying that He's going to make the Jews bow down before them and worship. He's promising them success in their gospel ministry. Although right now you don't see success, what I'm saying to you is I'm giving you this open door to proclaim the Word and success will follow in ministry because I will make it happen. Right? I will make it happen. So remain faithful. But what we also need to see, brothers and sisters, is that success is not defined by man's expectations. But rather, what success is, is God accomplishing His divine decree and purposes. That's what success is. The final thing that, that He says to the church in Philadelphia is this, that He will keep them from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on it. We read that in verse 10. Now, we are not to understand this as, as some believers do, as a, uh, a rapture that is going to occur. He's not saying that He's going to come and rapture the church uh, prior to the tribulation. And there's uh, a whole multitude of reasons why we are not to understand it that way. Uh, but I'll just give you a couple. Uh, first, is that nowhere in Scripture is a pre-tribulation rapture taught. And so, we can know that that's not what He's teaching here because of that. Uh, secondly, Right? That is not what the whole New Testament teaches us. It teaches that we're going to go through tribulation and the tribulation isn't going to end until Christ returns to relieve us of our affliction, which Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. And then I'll give you one more. That's Jesus' own words. I mean, we can think about John chapter 17 in His high priestly prayer. Right There Jesus knows that He will soon depart. Right, He is coming up upon His death and His resurrection, and then He is going to be with the Father, and no longer is He going to be in physical form with the saints. And so what is it that He prays for for the saints? Does He pray, Father, because of the tribulation that's going to come, I want You to take them out of the world? In verse 15 of John 17, He says this, I do not ask that You take them out of the world. Ready? I know tribulations come and they're going to be persecuted. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so what Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia is that you have been faithful to my name. You will be spiritually protected from all of those threats that will come upon you as tribulation nears. Now, the tribulation that he is talking about here, this hour of testing that's going to come upon the whole world, is penal judgment. That's what he's talking about. Penal judgment that is going to come upon unbelievers. And yes, it's true, he's talking about penal judgment that is going to come upon unbelievers in 95 AD, but it is that same penal judgment that continues to be exercised against the ungodly in every successive generation, and will continue to be exercised until Christ returns and obliterates all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we know that he's talking about the wicked here because of this phrase, those who dwell on the earth. That phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is a technical term that John uses to describe unbelievers throughout the book of Revelation. And so what Jesus is saying is that as the wicked are being punished, 
the persecution of the church is going to intensify. But know this, as the persecution of the church intensifies because the ungodly are being punished by the wrath of God, I will spiritually keep you from faltering and falling away from faith in me. That is what he is saying to the saints here in Philadelphia. And that's the same thing that he says to every single one of us here today. Which is why we are to hold fast. Just as he told the saints here to hold fast as well. For the Christ was the key of the kingdom who purchased a people by his own blood, who has given us salvation, who has opened the door of the kingdom to us, who strengthens us, will likewise protect his church spiritually against every trial and tribulation until he returns, so that no one will ever be able to steal your crown. What great promises he has made to the church in Philadelphia. This little, puny, weak church. No one is going to steal your crown. No one is going to cause you to fall away from me. This then, brothers and sisters, leads us to our third and our final point which is what Christ promises for His conquerors. Please look with me at verses 12 and 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, In my own name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What Christ is promising here to those who continue to persevere in faith until the end is that you will inherit eternal identification with Christ when you die as you will be given the name of God. That's what all three of these names signify. Eternal identification with Christ forever in glory. The name of God. The name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem. And Christ's own name are all meant to convey this idea right, that they are His people. And they have a dwelling place with their God, which can never be lost. In which they will spend all of eternity with Him when they die. Which is likewise conveyed by that description of saying that they are going to be a pillar in the temple of God. Now, there are many reasons, brothers and sisters, why we don't take the temple to be literal here, but rather figurative. One of the reasons is because if He's going to make you a pillar in His literal temple, then being made of a pillar doesn't sound like much of a promise, does it? You're, you're going to be a... a a marble pillar holding up God's temple in the New Jerusalem? Right? If, if the temple is literal, why is not the pillars? And so we need to understand that these are both to be understood in a figurative sense. Both the pillars and the temple. And we know this because God Himself tells us in the book of Revelation this. He tells us who in fact the temple is, which is God. God is the temple. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22, speaking about the new Jerusalem, this is what we hear. And I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. 
And so, brothers and sisters, what we need to see is the promise of being made a pillar in the temple of God is God's promise to you and I. Is God's promise to the church in Philadelphia of dwelling in His presence forever. Right? That is what it is a promise of. Of dwelling in His presence forever. Never being cast out of it again. Likewise, remember, this was a city that was shaken by earthquakes and had the memory of that in their minds. This was a church that was shaken maybe by doubt concerning their faith or their usefulness to Christ. This was a church comprised mostly of Gentiles who if they ever went to the temple were made to stand in the, the court of the Gentiles. And so what also Christ is saying to them is this, that never again are you going to be cast outside of My temple, but rather you are going to dwell in and with the temple Himself. That is what He is saying to the saints. You are going to be firmly entrenched in your Savior, never to have your faith or anything shaken again as you dwell with Me for all of eternity. That's what He's communicating and saying you are going to be a pillar in the temple of God. You are going to be in the bosom of your Lord. How can you ever be shaken when you're in His immediate presence forever? And what a thrilling message that must be to have been received by the church in Philadelphia. That not only was He blessing them there and now, not only was He opening this great door of opportunity, not only was He going to make successful their ministry, not only was He going to make the Jews bow down and bring them into the fold, but He also grants to them these marvelous promises of what they will receive if they endure victoriously in the faith to the bitter end. And brothers and sisters, this is the reason why they can go through everything that they've gone through. This is the reason why they can go through hurt and despair and trial and tribulation and endure. It's because He has told them the end. He has told them what they will receive. Even by our own experience. Isn't it much easier to go through things when you know what the end result will be? If I go through this surgery, I'm going to come out being able to walk perfectly fine again. And so it makes going through the pain and the therapy and all those things you have to do, it makes it much easier, doesn't it? Well, brothers and sisters, what we need to see is that Christ has already told us the end. He has revealed the end to us. And yet, brothers and sisters, the problem for us is that too many of us continue to doubt the promises of God. Which is why we find it so hard to walk through those dark valleys in our lives that He places us in. Because we, we doubt these promises. But also see that when you doubt the promises of God, what you are also doubting is the great love He has concerning you as well. But we can never forget what is the basis of that present and future love that Christ has for His church. Right? The basis for the future, present and past love of God is to be found in the past act that Christ had done in His atoning work on the cross. And because of what He has done, He guarantees that He will bring us through salvation unto the consummation. I mean, do we see how many 
I wills there are in our text today. I have set before you the door. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan bow down before you. I will keep you from the hour of trial. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar. I will write my name. I will, I will, I will, I will. He guarantees that He will bring about your salvation to its completion. And what a relief to the church. A a church that is weak and feeble and weary. A church that if left to itself would depart from the faith. All of the doubt that we suffer from now, if left to ourselves, would turn to complete and total unbelief. But thanks be to God that because of who God is and, and what He has done, He will not suffer His Son to lose one person. But remember why you have that favor. It is not because you are holy and true. It is because you by faith are in the One who is holy and true. Right? Remember why you have that favor. It is not because of your perfect love for God, but rather it is because of God's perfect love for you. And He continues now to to love you and to make you holy and He will make you spotless as He has all authority to bring you into that kingdom and give you that name and the privilege and the honor of dwelling with Him for all of eternity. But as we close, remember one final thing. And that is that He who holds the key of David, who opens and shuts right now opens to you the opportunity right? as you hear the Gospel. But one day He will close and shut every opportunity up to you. And no longer will there be opportunity to enter into the Kingdom. And so for the unbeliever who is sitting here today, know this, that the day of salvation for you is today. Repent, believe, and trust your soul to the Lord. And for those believers who are here today, let us be encouraged to simply declare the name of the Lord. To declare the Gospel week after week. To hold fast and to hold firm to His name. And then simply rest in knowing that He who has an ear will hear. Because God has granted to him an ear to hear. And we simply rest and trust and reside ourselves in that. Please, brothers and sisters, bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your most holy and gracious Word. We ask, Father, that You would help the the spiritual truths to, to sit and to saturate in our hearts and in our minds that we might think about them and dwell upon them this week. Uh, that we might see how It is You who are sovereign over all things. That it is You that we must turn to and trust in and look to for every opportunity. It is You who we must pray to. It is You who we we must call out to and look to for strength if we ever desire success in our ministry. That we are not to, to turn away from You and to look to innovate or trust in ourselves, but rather we are to wait on the Lord and know that He will bless His people if we are faithful and true. And so, Father, we come before You praying all these things in Christ's name. Amen.